Can I ask you if you have your Bibles with you today to please open them to the book of James? Now, this whole series um, that we're starting today and that Bruce is going to be continuing um, is based on the book of James. And so, a strong encouragement would be as you're coming for the series to spend time reading through the epistle. It's only five chapters long, so you could quite easily read it at least once a week before you come to each session. And hopefully, it would bring about some. Uh, some of the broader perspectives that James is speaking into and enable you to access some of the teaching which he brings. I want to sp- focus on one specific area. Next week, Bruce is going to be picking up with James chapter 1, and I'm sure he'll look a lot into the doctrine of justification. But we're going to start off with a bit of a background about James. James is one of those controversial writers in Scripture. He's book or his letter is highly esteemed by those who have a theology of salvation by faith plus works, or even a faith that is proved by works. Because of that, in some early canonical lists, it finds itself excluded. But we know that today, James is included in the canon of Scripture that we would normally refer to as an authoritative text. But theologians such as Martin Luther found that they thought or or believed that it was counter to the doctrine of salvation by faith through grace alone, and he contested its viability as part of the canon of Scripture. But James is an incredibly important book. It's important for emphasizing the role of demonstrating your faith through a transformed life, and it's as important as Paul's letter to the Galatians, which illuminates the foundation of salvation by grace grace through faith alone. Now, I'm sure you know this already, that Bruce has taught on Galatians and has written his book, No More Law, but he's going to be turning his attention to how we handle James, how we, as firm adherents to the profound and liberating truth that Jesus has finished the work, that he has justified us, is going to tackle James and show us how we handle that in context of justification by faith. But in the meantime, I'm just going to kick you off with a little bit of a look at James, his style, his background, so that it it sets a bit of a context. So who is this James that has written the book of James? It's commonly accepted that it was written by James, also known as James the Just, or the half-brother of Jesus. If you were to refer to Mark 6, verse 3, the teachers find Jesus teaching, and they ask this question, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. So they were offended at him. This is Jesus' brother, James. He wasn't a Christian at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He was somebody that was at odds with the walk that Jesus had. At a certain point in time, he and his brothers, James and Jesus' brothers, are challenging Jesus saying that you should go from here into Judea and do the great works so that other people can see what you're doing. Don't hide yourself away, but rather let it be known openly. For even his brothers did not believe him, it says in John chapter 7, verse 3. So James didn't believe in Jesus while he was practicing at least his early ministry, and it's unclear as to when he did become a Christian, but we do find him in Acts chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, numbered amongst those 120 who are waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Shortly after that, we find that James has grown in stature. He's gone from being a non-believing Jew, not believing who Jesus is, to being saved or recognizing who Jesus is 
on the day of Pentecost to now being a recognized leader in the church of Jerusalem. We see in Galatians 1.19, Paul referring to James, the Lord's brother, as a, a teacher or leader in the church in Jerusalem. We see in Acts 12.17 and Acts 15.13 and Acts 21.18, where both Peter and Paul recognize G James and his headship role within the church in Jerusalem. They consult him on issues of doctrine. And even in Paul's famous text in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7, when he's referring to those that have seen Jesus risen from the dead, the first person he refers to by name is James. So James has a central role in attesting to the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And we can only surmise at this point in time, until we get a talk to James in person, that it was seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead that caused him to make a transition in faith. See, it went from understanding Jesus to be the perfect brother, you know, the one that was always doing the right thing when his mom was busy telling James off for the sin that was in his life. He'd always be, look at your brother Jesus. So he'd move from that place of recognizing the perfection of his brother Jesus to the place of recognizing Jesus as the Son of God. And as Jesus' brother, he has a unique perspective to bring to us. He must himself have been radically affected by Jesus' death, enough to surrender the brotherly distance. I don't know if you, know if you have brothers or sisters, but sometimes there is this kind of competition, and you know, you'll be the greater brother. No, I'll be the greater brother. No, you'll be the greater. And so there's this underlying context, but James has surrendered that agenda to serve Jesus, his brother, as though he were his Lord and Savior. So that is a radical transformation, a radical transformation which has brought him to this place of leadership in the church. If you were to take James and you were to ask yourself, who does this writing remind you of? You'd probably find that there's a lot of undertones with his brother Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's writing to the Jews who have been dispersed. There was a persecution which occurred in Jerusalem and the Jews had been spread all over, that is the believing Jews had been spread all over the surrounding region. And he's writing as one who obviously has authority with those who are reading his text. He doesn't introduce himself as any more than I'm James. And then begins to give them strict doctrinal instructions. You'd find the reflections of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the constant refer references to the law where he brings in adultery, where he brings in murder. He's writing to a people who seem to be wrestling with some complex issues, the now and not yet nature of the kingdom, a Greek philosophy which had led them to a place where knowledge or earthly wisdom was more significant or important to them than the supernaturally directed experience of God-given wisdom. He was writing to people who were struggling with how do they treat their brothers and sisters who've been brought from a great variety and diversity of, of background from places of poverty and of affluence. How do we relate with them in the context of Christ? What is clear as you'll unpack this through the series going forward is to the discerning reader, far from reestablishing the law, James is imitating Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount and seeking to bring home the practical implications of the gospel of grace. He's seen and experienced firsthand what grace cost. It cost the death of his own brother, Jesus. And so it's a lot more personal to him. And therefore, he's a lot more direct. You see, the character of James shines through. 
in the same way that he taunted Jesus, so to speak, or being quite direct with Jesus, not believing who he was before he became a Christian, he is now as an advocate of Christ on the side of Jesus, challenging those who are living as though grace was something cheap or frivolous. He understood that it's significant because it cost him his own brother. And so as we unpack this, let's think about James in that context. This is a man of significance, a man respected by the Jews, a man who'd walked with Jesus longer than any of the other disciples because he'd known him from his birth. And he's seeking to bring home some truth about how grace affects us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've gifted us with your word. And Lord, we turn to this valuable book of scripture today because we want to understand how faith brings forth fruit in our lives because of the grace that we've received. And Lord, we ask, Father, in this earnest search and inquisition of your word, that you would speak to us, Lord. Lord, that you would bring forth revelation, Lord God, that you would highlight to us little nuggets which would be fruit-bearing, that would be meat for us to chew on as we go through this week, and that we would know you deeper and know you more through this. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to come to you today with a deep question. And it's a deep question because not many of us would ever be willing enough to admit to the fact that we have pride. But the question for you today is, is pride robbing you? I'm reading to you from James chapter 4 and verse 1 through 10. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You got problems? I've got problems. I'm sure you've got problems. And our problems have different sources and different reasons for existence in our lives. Now, not all of those problems are because you're facing persecution. Sometimes we are a bit too frivolous with that word persecution. It seems that any time somebody says something to us that is contrary to our will, we begin to claim it's persecution. But that's a bit of an insult, I might suggest, to those who actually do lay their lives down because of persecution, who actually do suffer for the cause of Christ, who actually do suffer for holding to the person and teaching of Jesus. Not all of our problems are caused by persecution. Fewer than that are 
are problems caused by intense spiritual warfare and demons getting in the way of your blessing. Because no one can curse whom God has blessed. Even less of those problems are when we look at other people and their errors and their imposition on us while we innocently watch on. In fact, James seems to be saying to us, if there's pride in your heart, then you're the one that's standing in the way of God's blessing. And you're the one that needs to deal with your heart issue through repentance to begin to see the flow of God's blessing in your life in a genuine manner. And that's where pride really begins to intersect with how we're living as a Christian. No one likes to admit they're proud. I struggle with pride personally. I need to make sure that I'm walking in humility. I think everyone needs to at least have that honesty and integrity to say that they do the same. Let's go back to that first text. Where do wars and fights come from amongst you? These Christians that James is writing to are the same Christians that he wrote to in James chapter 2, who seem to consider that success in the kingdom is measured by external wealth. In James chapter 2, we see an example of rich people coming to a banquet and poor people coming to a banquet. And they would bring the rich people and align them at the head of the table and the poor people where they would put them either at the end or in the corner away, simply because of an external experience, uh, external appearance. It's the same ones that James is now writing to. It seems that they have moved beyond an admiration of things of wealth to an idol worship, a fleshly obsession, an understanding that if you have material possession, then you are a Christian of significance. And it seems that that has begun to motivate the different Christians in that environment. They are beginning to step into pride and self-assertion. This has suddenly overtaken their motivations as believers for following Christ. It seems that they have moved beyond the spirit of Christ and have prioritized the blessings which come because of the goodness of God. And rather than prioritizing the heart, they are now prioritizing the objects. In today's language, this would be, I'm a good Christian because I dress in Prada, I've got a Louis Vuitton handbag, and I'm wearing Chanel. Or I'm wearing a Giorgio Armani suit and wearing the finest Salvatore Ferragamo shoes that you can buy. Therefore, I'm a good Christian. And when I walk into a room, you better notice that I've arrived. If the fragrance has not gone before me, the glory of my clothing will, of course, signal that I'm here. And that all began and is continued by a temptation that is given. You might say that it is the lie of the enemy. It, you might say that it's the lust of the eye. But it's this deception that material wealth is the end goal of the Christian faith. And we can't really, if you've gone to the stage of that full presentation of good Christian nature revealed in how well you've dressed, say, oh, you know what, I just made a mistake, I was deceived by the devil. See, there's complicity in getting to that point where the entirety of your external presentation is informed by this desire for material wealth. You've decided to make a relationship with the ways of the world, the lusts of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh. 
And whether or not it was initiated by the enemy, that relationship is now cemented with him by prioritizing the spirit of the world. Maybe you don't dress fancy. Maybe you don't bring the best finery. And we do believe in honoring God with what he's placed in your life and presenting yourself appropriately. But maybe there are other ways that you're exhibiting pride in your life. Probably you're sitting there thinking, no, I'm not proud. No, no. I'm just here to learn so that I can teach my cell members. Pride looks like you maneuvering for your advancement, trying to get to the top. Sometimes that looks like, you know, no one likes me, but I don't care. I'm on my way to the top, and I'll get my blessing, and I don't even care if nobody's there to celebrate with me. Pride looks like, I'm not having you tell me anything. Who do you think you are? I mean, you might be a leader, you might be a person of influence, you might have a specific expertise, but I know best. Pride looks like God told me, so let my will be done. It looks like two-facedness. Hi, how are you doing? You, you know what? You're so amazing. You're such a blessing to me. Can you believe that that person dared to walk into the room with a smile like that? Two-facedness. Pride looks like no one's going to make this happen for me, so I'm going to do it myself. And when pride begins to outwork, it is going towards this goal of accumulating and attracting a status, a wealth, a position, something that we have earned for ourselves at the cost of many others. And it's diametrically opposed to the purpose of the kingdom of God. The goal of the kingdom is for loving relationship between brother and sister in Christ. And brother and brother and sister and sister, a big family. The goal of the kingdom is the benefit of others through your serving life. The goal of the kingdom is not accumulation of wealth and me being at the top of the pyramid, but rather me seeking to serve as many as I can. And the fruit of that pride leads inevitably to a breakdown, a breakdown in relationship, arguments, division, backbiting, destroying other people's character, their integrity with words that are sown when they are not there to defend themselves. And when that begins to happen, it's not some mistake or unexplainable coincidence. In fact, Scripture says, don't be surprised when it happens. This isn't a war with some weakness in them or a demonically inspired conspiracy against you with them as the agent. This is a direct consequence of a choice on your part, if you're walking in pride, to align yourself to the spirit of the world and agreeing that you will use your giftings, your abilities, your capacities to gain the wealth and riches of the world. That attitude, that heart, that spirit of the world is guaranteed to cause a relational breakdown with your brother and sister because they are the enemy in the way of you achieving that goal which you have set for yourself. Any position attained or retained by prideful self-assertion is leading to destruction. That's quite an advanced state of pride I've put out there for you. But there are a couple of indicators or early indicators that perhaps there is an issue of self-reliance which needs to be dealt with. 
because self-reliance gives rise to pride. We read in that text, you have not because you ask not. There's a danger for us today as Christians, especially in London, especially here in London, because we live busy lives, because we uh, have a, 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 a job to keep, and we have a cell ministry to run, and we have a social life to maintain, and we have a family to interact with, and we have many different aspects that we need to, inter, uh, we need to be pushing forward concurrently. And James is challenging us at the back end of this passage that I read, but we'll get to there, that we need to be people that rely on Christ for everything that we have. Now, these are people that have aligned their priority to material wealth. And in the midst of their busyness, they have assumed and are living as though they can do it themselves, they need nobody else. Now, why would I throw out there that we need to be guarding against that in our current context? Because it's very, very easy to get up in the morning and not pray. It's very, very easy to go to work without having prayed. It's very easy to get back from work without having prayed. It's very easy to interact with your family without having prayed. What are you bringing to that table then? The table of work, the table of family relationship, the table of interaction with your social life. You're bringing you. And your goal is, I'm gonna get the best or most that I can out of this situation, be it work, be it relationship, with the giftings and abilities that I have. I don't need God. You know what, I'm not even gonna ask God. I'm not even gonna reach out to him. I'm not even gonna include him in my day-to-day -day interactions. Because I can do it. I've got the gifting, I've got the talent, I've got the capacity. And we need to watch out for that. Because that is the subtle initiation of pride. I can get all that I need myself. Or the next phrase that James brings out, the attitude of self-importance. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know what? I've decided that I want this status of life. So God, that status of life looks like I should be driving a Mercedes. It looks like I should have a three-bedroom flat. It looks like I should be able to spend 100 pounds a meal on a, a 100 pounds per meal at least once a week. It looks like I should be able to go on a nice holiday at least three times a year. It looks like I should have enough money to bless those around us so that they know that we're rich. So Lord, if you could just meet all of my needs... If you could just provide what I need for that, 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 that. There's something amiss here. Because what's at the driving or what's at the foundation is a desire for a status. It is this prideful assertion that I must be in this level of society. Now, by making that statement, I'm not at all saying that all Christians, therefore, give away everything and sell everything and relegate themselves to the poverty line. Not at all. God places you at the appropriate level for where he places you. And he blesses you with what he needs to bless you with for that place. So that you can be a blessing. But he calls each one of us at the station of life that he's placed us to glorify him and honor him. We are free people. 
We're human beings created in the, in the image of God. And he challenges each one of us to, with what we have, so give, honor God, glorify God, have great motivations, and let him do the elevation. And so there's these two attitudes which creep through, the attitude of self-reliance or the attitude of self-importance. And it seems that James is suggesting that carrying those two attitudes, at least those two attitudes, in our prayer life, our motivation, our attitude, leads to a lack and a breakdown of relationship. It leads to warring with our members, warring with our brother, warring with our sister, and it also leads to unanswered prayer. And so that's why I asked this question at the beginning, is pride robbing you? You have not because you don't ask, don't care to ask God for what you need. But secondly, the things that you do bother to ask for are in order to attain a status which is beyond what the Lord has given. See, if we're not satisfied, and this is perhaps a most telling point, if we're not satisfied with the fact that we are much loved by God, we've been adopted as a son or daughter of the living God, he has showered his blessing and goodness upon us, we are totally forgiven by God, we have the hope of eternal life, and we look forward to the day of resurrection when we get to be standing with our Father in heaven. If that doesn't satisfy us, then is a little promotion going to satisfy us? Is a little bit more money in the bank going to satisfy us? Is a status which other people look at and honor going to satisfy us? See, there's honor which comes from men, but there's an honor which only comes from God. And which one is the one that we are living our lives in accordance with? If we are seeking to live in the ways of the world and have the riches of the world, then perhaps it's something that needs to change. The section number two begins, adulterous, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Adulterers and adulteresses. Unfaithful to God is, that what, is what that means. Being unfaithful to the living God who's shown his goodness towards us. And the title of this series is, Shut Up and Show Me. Shut up and show me the reality of your faith. Now, if all we're doing is exercising our faith for the goal of some status, which will be acceptable to man, but which is not acceptable to God, it's not really exercising faith. Rather, it's demonstrating self-reliance. It's demonstrating pride. The exercise of faith is a fundamental knowledge that we need God and we reach out to God and we trust God at every level of our lives. But if we're choosing pride, if we're choosing our self-assertion, we're choosing our own capacities, we're choosing to rely on our own giftings, we're choosing the wrong side. We're choosing to align ourselves to the side where in, instead of seeing God's blessing, we see God's resistance. Have you ever been in that place where you're like, you know what, God's just against me? Some people have a bit of a complexity about that, a complex about that, sorry. They think that God is against them in every situation. In general, God is for you when you put your faith and trust in Him. When you know Him as your Lord, uh, Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you're walking in relationship with the Father, God is for you. God is about seeing you prosper. But 
where there is pride in operation in your life, he will resist that. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? It speaks in Proverbs of the fact that pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit comes before a fall. I actually want to put it out there for you that the reason that God resists the proud is because he loves them. The reason that God doesn't bless those that are advancing or asserting themselves over other people is because the only end goal of that pride is destruction. The only end result of that self-proclamation is a downfall. And he wants us to understand that rather than see us fail, he would see us succeed. And in order to see us succeed, he would call us to the place of humility. It's a father's exhortation. There's no one that can exhort us like God. And he, re- he exhorts us through this powerful, powerful gift that he gives. It says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. The Father's response to our prideful self-assertion, the Father's response to us making ourselves bigger than we ought to be is to give us more grace. Not to withhold his hand and say, you know what, you guys are going to fail. He gives us more grace in the form of resisting that pride and when we humble ourselves, elevating us. It's a work of grace on both sides. Now let me just begin to unpack a bit of this so that we kind of get it on a personal level. I want you to think about the last disagreement you had with a friend. I want you to think about how that disagreement went. Perhaps they had done something, you know, um, maybe you've you've got one of those friends, because I'm sure you aren't one of these friends, but you've got one of those friends who you make an arrangement to meet for coffee, and it's at five o'clock and it's half past five, and you ring them to find out where they're at, and they don't pick up the phone. And then you get the text back five minutes later, I'm really sorry, Mr. Call, I'm not gonna be able to make it for coffee after all. I'm sure you've got those friends, okay? You're not one of them. And you decided, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a conversation with this person. Fully justified to have the conversation because you know when people are overstepping boundaries, you do need to lovingly confront them. That's what Scripture speaks about, that we come one to another brother and discuss with them their error. But you make a decision, I'm going to go and I'm going to sit down with this person. And let's just say there's not the right spirit in the way that you bring this conversation about. Why didn't you call me? Well, what do you mean? Well, we had an arrangement. Five o'clock. We're supposed to meet at five o'clock. You don't care about this relationship, do you? What do you mean? Well, you know, I'm really sorry. It was a genuine situation. I got stuck underground, and when I came out the other side and was able to text you, it was bec- only because we were at a station which had signal, and I was going to be miles away, and I just couldn't make it. But then we went under, before I had time to type it out, at the full text, we went back underground. I couldn't I would never treat you like that. You know, you're a terrible friend. And you know what? I would never, ever disrespect someone just like you've disrespected me. Now, this has gone beyond just a normal confrontation right now. This is into, I am going to assert my will. This is, I am going to 
my end goal out of this, you're going to owe me. I'm going to make you feel so bad that I'm going to benefit from this relationship. You let me down. I said, there's going to come a time when I'm going to come a-knocking. This self-assertion now, this imposition on somebody else, this action of pride, which is what it is, you've wronged me and so I'm going to get you back, now puts you in a position where you are seeking to benefit from a relationship in an ungodly manner. In that context, you've probably been thinking about your own conversation that went not so good. But in that context, that self-assertion, I never do this and you always do that and I'm great and you're really terrible and you should feel really guilty for the bad friend that you are. It feels powerful, doesn't it? It feels like a position of strength. It feels like I'm so good, you know, let me give a pat myself a pat on the back. Or another one of those conversations where you, you uh, these, these are great conversations where somebody's done something wrong and you go and tell them, you let them know about it. Hey, you know what, you know, that, that, uh, that thought that you have right there, that is just deception. You're walking in foolishness. You've made the decision to leave the country because of your own will. It's completely not from God. And you know what? You should thank me because I'm such a good friend that I've told you. None of you have ever had a conversation like that. You can see by the innocence on your faces. But those prideful exertions, those times where we feel that we know everything and can tell somebody else about it, they are not powerful. Because the actual only thing that they're powerful to accomplish is destruction. Pride comes before a fall. So in that example that I gave about the friend that you're just about to cut off and just about to eliminate because they didn't text you or about to manipulate because you now have something on them, You might now find yourself actually having to back down. You know what? It was just a really difficult situation. As I explained, I was stuck in the tube. And then you begin to say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry for saying all the things that I said. I'm sorry that I, um, you know, I, I judged you and I thought that you were a terrible friend. That would be the appropriate way, actually, to back down. But once you've committed yourself to that line of action, you know, I'm going to make you feel bad, most people won't back down. Most people won't humble themselves. And that leads to the destruction of that relationship. It leads to the brokenness of that relationship, at least. It's not a powerful position, though for an instant it feels powerful. But on the other side, this, this context of, well, what's the alternative to pride? It's humility, and most people would assume that humility is weakness. But I want to put it out there for you that actually humility is a position of strength. Because humble people aren't the ones that always get beaten up or downtrod or looked down upon. Humble people are people that recognize something very important. It's they recognize that they don't have the whole picture on any one situation. They have a perspective, but other people have their perspective, and there's one who has the supreme perspective, which is God. And it's his perspective which we should cherish the highest. So rather than being people that are constantly bringing about destruction of relationship or pushing people to the edge of uh, and, and, and seeking control positions, rather recognizing the humble place. Let me find out everything that actually happened because I've got my perspective, you've got your perspective, and let's see how God actually wants me to handle this situation. 
So that's what pride and humility look like. And so let's bring, bring that back into this discussion that we're looking at and having with James. James is saying, if you align yourself to your perspectives, to your desires, to your hopes for material wealth, then you're making yourself an enemy with God. And in order to find yourself coming out of that situation, is to recognize that grace is given to those that are humble. Grace is given to those that recognize that they don't have all of the answers, and God does have all of the answers. Let's align ourselves to Him. So James 4, uh, in this James 4 passage, beginning from verse 7, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and warn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. Now this brings us to another question, a question of what is it to submit to God? We've looked a little bit at the fact that humility is recognizing we don't have the whole perspective, but what is it to submit to God? Because most of us, at some level, would resist something that we would term control. Pride in itself is a manifest, is an as, manifests as an assertion of independence. It manifests as a resistance to control. Most often you see it in the, in the way that a man would present himself. I'm a man. I make my own decisions. I do what I want. I do it when I want to do it. Women, there's other ways of interacting with that kind of search for independence. We act like that because we're trying to resist control. And in this instance, we're subtly resisting control to God. Oh, I don't like that word submission. It just doesn't, doesn't sit well with me. God, you're God. I'm me. I'll figure it out. But James is bringing us to a place where we need to understand that submission to God is actually the only way forward. We need to be aware of controlling relationships. 100% we need to resist controlling relationships. But the controlling relationship we need to resist the most is the one of pride, the one of self-assertion. Rather, we're not controlled to, called to be controlled by anyone, but to submit to the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit that is in us brings forth the fruit of self-control. What does submitting to the Holy Spirit look like? It looks like recognizing that we have a responsibility to God for our decisions. The reasons that we do something. The reasons that we have gone on a certain course of action. And the challenge from God is... In order to fully take responsibility in the correct way for the decision that you've made is to bring that motivation or the motivation for that thing before God. We need to justify the reasons that we are doing anything by the Word of God, by the standard of God. So this looks like, Lord, your Word says that you desire sexual purity from every single Christian. It looks like taking that understanding, that standard, and aligning ourselves to that. Our motives, our intents, our purposes, 
and aligning to that. The person who is not submitting to God is the person who says, you know what, um, that word applies to everybody else, but God's told me it's okay to sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend because we're going to get married in a, a couple of years' time. Definitely going to get married. So it's okay. Or, you know what, um, uh, in, in Scripture it, 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 says, it says, love your enemies. But it also has that great bit afterwards where it says, pray for them um, and bless them because the coals of fire will get heaped on their head. So we begin to act as if we're the ones that need to heap the coals of fire on their head. When the attitude that the Lord calls for us to have is to love our enemies and to bless them. See, submitting to God is choosing to align our intents and our actions to the Word of God. And saying, God, your Word is superior to mine. Your understanding is superior to mine. And so, you know what? Whatever you say is what I am going to seek to align my processes or my agenda towards. And we find that if we cannot reasonably and clearly justify our position with God without having to assert ourselves in an ungodly manner, then we are in danger of falling into pride and therefore broken relationship with God, with those around us. And so God challenges us with a deep word. It says, submit to God. Submit to God. This isn't about surrendering your identity or giving up your unique attributes. This is about recognizing that God is God and His way is higher than our way. And in so doing, choosing to submit to God, there is an equal and opposite reaction or uh, requirement, which is to resist the devil. Sometimes people find, you know what, God, I'm going to submit to you just as long as I'm happy with the way that you're leading me, but I'm going to keep my friend the devil over here. And if you don't give me what I want, well, he sure is going to bless me with the things of the world. And this is a problem because it's double-mindedness. It's God, I love you as God, but you know what? These things of the world are awfully satisfying. They're tempting and they look so good. And you know what? I know all I have to do is reach out and take it. So God, if you don't give me what I want, I'm just going to go and take it from over here. James is saying, that doesn't work. That doesn't work for us. If we truly want the blessing of the kingdom, if we truly want the, 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 the relationship with God that flows from the Spirit, we need to commit 100% to the ways of God and allow Him to do the work of elevating, allow Him to do the work of blessing. It's surrendering the second option. God, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to go the ways of the world. And this has to be a serious decision. That's why James goes to the point of saying, you know what? Stop laughing and giggling like it's all okay. Mourn about the heart attitude that you have. Stop making joyful actions as though your life is full of riches when you're living with deception. Rather, take this seriously. Take it seriously and understand that to benefit, to enjoy the riches of relationship with God, you need to surrender the ways of the world. You need to surrender the things that believe the world would give to you. You need to surrender the status that the world will give to you. And rather, choose the thing which God finds most important, a humble heart. Choose a place that God finds most important, recognizing that God is God and He knows best and I'm in a relationship with Him and He is going to lead me. He is going to guide me. 
Proverbs 29, 23 says, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. You know what? When you, when, when you find this place, God, I want what you want. My desire is what you desire. I'm surrendering that double-minded second option, my backup, and I'm going 100% after you. You'll find that you don't end up robbed. You don't end up poorer. You actually end up richer. You actually end up in a place where you can pray a serious prayer. You see, some people abdicate, you know, where it says, you, you, you have not because you ask amiss and you desire to spend it on your own pleasure. So people then, you know, God, you know, I don't even know if I'm asking right. So you know what? God, if it be, if it be thy will, if it be thy will, you'll bless me. If it be thy will, you give me this. If it be thy will, you give me that. That's an abdication of faith. Rather, it's saying, God, because I know your will, I'm praying this. Because I know your will, I'm believing you for that. Because I trust you, I'm looking to, the, to you to provide in this area. See, when we now align ourselves to the plan and purposes of God, we don't have to pray, if it be thy will, will prayers. We pray anointed, faith-filled prayers, which will see a response because we are aligned to the heart of the Father. You know what you don't have to pray? Well, you don't have to say, if, if it be thy will prayer. It's when you're trying to love your enemy. If it be thy will, God, give me, a, give me some love for this person. No, God, your word says, love my enemy. So God, I need love because I sure as heaven don't feel like I love this person right now. I need love to be able to love that person. That's praying the will of God because you know that his desire is for you to love your enemy. If you're looking at a situation where you know that you need to trust in the provision of God, God, I'm trusting you that you're the Lord God, my provider, and I'm looking to you for your provision. I'm praying, God, that in this situation, in this situation, you'll provide because you're praying according to the will of God. You know because you're aligning yourself increasingly to this word. So we have a challenge from James. We have a challenge if we find ourselves in a place where we are being robbed by pride. Our relationships keep, keep breaking down, our prayers aren't being answered, and there is a recognition and an honesty about the fact that we are perhaps asserting ourselves on every situation and seeking our own, after our own idolatrous goals. There's an opportunity for us to recover, for us to recover from pride. And that is this, to own our mistakes and to recognize that God is God and therefore humble ourselves. Submit to God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That humbling, that aligning with God puts you in a safe place. And in that place, you know what, devil, I don't want a part with you anymore. He might try and tempt you with the things of the world again. He might try and tempt you with riches. It might be that you left a job where you were earning 100 grand a year, for example, and you had everything that you wanted, but in order to deal with the heart issue of the God of mammon in your heart, which might have been there, God led you through a season of not having enough and having to rely on him. And then comes that temptation, the 100 grand job again. And you'll know, am I wanting it because of the lust of the world? Am I wanting that job because I believe I can honor God there? There's a hard attitude which will enable you to discern that. But you see, the devil will try and tempt you back in. Devil, I don't want a part in your riches. I don't want a part in the ways of the world. I don't want a part in your blessing. I want God's blessing. 
And in that acknowledgement of God, in that place of temptation, resisting the devil, you'll see that he has to flee. You'll see that he has no uh, ability to tempt you any longer. And at that place, you'll see God, the work is done. That pride is dealt with. I know that you can trust me. And so I'm going to do the elevating. I'm going to put you in the position where I believe that you're going to serve me. I'm going to put you in the place where I know that you're going to honor me. See, the recovery from pride involves humbling ourselves. But humbling ourselves to the point that we trust God for all and allow him to elevate when it's his time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your challenge to us. Lord, we recognize that there's a responsibility that we need to take. If there is a history, a litany of broken relationships, of church hopping, of independence, of keeping other people at a distance because we're seeking after much more than we think that we can get from them. But we recognize that there's a need for you to deal with our hearts. There's pride there. And Lord, we don't want to be people that continually hunt and search after material wealth, but rather we want to seek after the riches which you honor, the humble heart, the contrite heart that you do not despise, the heart that recognizes that you're God and that we want your honor, not the honor of men, not the riches of the world, but we want your honor. We want to be in genuine relationship with you. So Father, for those that are struggling with pride, I thank you that you would lead them graciously and gently to that place where they make a decision to no longer be double-minded, to keep the double option, to keep the, the riches of the world and the relationship with God, but rather to surrender that all. Say, God, I want to go your way. I'm going to be guided by your word. I'm going to ask according to your will. I'm going to be led by your spirit. And watch how God does what he does. Father, we thank you for gently dealing with us and harshly dealing with us where necessary to root out this pride from our hearts and rather give us that Holy Spirit which glorifies and honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a big praise. Fantastic. Well, see you in about half an hour. Richard Taylor, it's going to be a great, great night, and we look forward to worshiping God and what he's going to do. See you.